0: This is Talk Is Sheep, the official podcast of the Wild Sheep Society of BC, brought to you by Sitka Gear. Come along as we bring conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. This episode is sponsored by our conservation partner, Stone Glacier. Thank you Sitka Gear and Stone Glacier for investing in healthy wildlife and sustainable ecosystems. Keep talking you guys, don't be shy. So, um, so welcome to Talk is Sheep, Predator Management 101. And this is going to be a fun one. Uh, we have not done this before. We've talked predators on Talk is Sheep before, but sort of one-on-one. Um, we've had wildlife biologists, but this is going to be a fun one because we've got uh, very diverse perspectives. We've got uh, the guide opening community on here. We've got an author that's been to Africa and had her life changed because of it. Um, and we've got the married couple that's uh, been making decisions with government uh, that's going to help us out with this. Uh, Greg and I are just going to try and shepherd the way. And, uh, and I guess we'll start, uh, you know, Renee, you and I talked about this. It was sort of a vision of yours of getting uh, a bunch of diverse perspectives together to talk about wildlife uh, management, talk about predator management and getting some different opinions and ideas and thoughts And kind of address these issues. So um, I want to thank you for inspiring this, and I think it's a pretty cool topic.
1: Yeah, well, thank you, Kyle. Thank you, Greg. It's so great to have everybody here for this discussion, and thanks for making this happen. I think it's going to be a great one.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So just a little bit of full disclosure here. We tried to get actually a biologist on, and uh, we had a wildlife manager that was a biologist. Uh, He's retired, and he was traveling tonight. So we're going to do this again. We're going to do part B and we actually had one of our regional biologists in uh, BC reach out to us and he wanted to be on tonight, I think as well, but certainly wanted to discuss with us. So we, we envision another round of these, but this will get us going. And, uh, you know, predator management is always an emotive issue and, uh, something that's always fun to talk about. And I guess for those that are tuning in and I know all of you on the podcast know this, but, uh for us predator management, you know, we're not just talking about wolves or, you know, it's kind of the whole gamut. So when we talk predators, we're talking bears, wolves, coyotes, and, you know, in BC here, uh, our regional wild sheep and mountain goat specialist always talks about how one of the the big predators for young goats and sheep is uh eagle. So interesting enough, not that, I don't know that there's a lot of management actions we can take on that one, but it's interesting to, so, you know, it's kind of the full gamut and, you know, the big one, and I know John, you're very, uh, um, involved with this and understand it well is coyotes, right? And we've seen that a lot here in British Columbia. Um the coyote yeah, issues that we've had there. So we're going to talk about them all tonight. We're not going to limit anything. Everything's uh open game. But the first thing we'll do here is we'll start off with some intros. So um and we'll start with you, Renee, because you kind of spearheaded the the idea behind this. And uh, we're really pleased to have you back on the podcast. Is this the third or fourth time you've been on? Fourth. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Are people are going to start to talk. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you know somebody that has their own podcast, just out of interest? I'm just wondering.
1: (laughs) I might. (laughs) Um,
0: Anyway, for those that don't know Renee, and her reputation certainly precedes her because she's been on several times, but uh, Renee is the chair of the uh, Women Hunt Initiative with the Wild Sheep Foundation. And the cool thing with Renee is that she was an adult onset hunter in her mid-40s and and wanted to go out and, and do some hunting and she was having a hard time trying to find somebody to get her out there. And um, her first hunt was a bear hunt um, at the ripe age of 46, I think you said. Right. And uh, so that kind of inspired your passion around predators. and and um, And I think that's what kind of inspired us to come here tonight.
1: Yeah, that's right. Thank you, Kyle. Yeah, Um, My journey into hunting was, um, you know, I suppose I'm starting to learn maybe not as unusual as I would have thought. I saw that Jack Atchison Jr. also had a black bear hunt as his very first hunt way back in the day. But uh, I know for me, you know, it wasn't what I was expecting from my first hunting mentor up in uh, northern Alberta and uh and it and it was transformative but it's really my pleasure to be here and and you know i run this program called women hunt and it really germinated from my own experiences trying to uh navigate the hunting and conservation community as a solo female adult on set hunter with no connections and so i uh, just wanted to say that kyle and greg and all of wssbc thank you so much for supporting women hunt and helping to promote it and 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 just uh uh, helping our committee bring in more women in, and I think we're really making a tremendous impact. So, my pleasure to be here, and looking forward to this conversation.
0: Awesome, Renee. Thank you. It's really cool. Um, Jack, let's uh, let's head over to you. So, Jack Atchison Jr. and Jack, you're the president of Jack Atchison and Sons, an international hunting consulting firm, and uh, you've been hunting all over the world for decades. I think you started the firm back in '71. And, um, uh, you know, Jack, I've always respected your opinion and, uh, you know, Renee suggested you being on this one. And I listened to, uh, one of the, uh, sheep fever podcasts you did, and you had, you had some very impactful statements on there and look forward to getting your perspective, um, from the guide outfitting industry, but then also from a conservationist perspective, you obviously were on the wild sheep foundation board of directors for years and chairman for a couple of years as well. So we're really excited to hear your perspective.
2: Well, I'm happy to share my uh, viewpoints. I mean, some might uh, uh, surprise people or, or delight people, but uh, I uh, I look forward to, uh, I'm a professional talker, so I, I think uh, I can keep things buzzing. So
0: Awesome. Well, we're looking forward to it. Looking forward to some diverse perspectives, too. That's the cool thing about this one is uh, it's going to be fun to hear where everyone sits with everything. Sue, Sue Tidwell, welcome to the, the podcast again. Um, you've been on the podcast before and uh of course, Cries of the Savannah—a fantastic book. I've got it here. I've enjoyed. I really enjoyed reading it. And it's interesting. I've had some non-hunting friends of mine reach out to me and really talk about the impact that that book has had on them. And uh, we thought it'd be a fantastic opportunity for you to be on tonight to talk about your perspective. And you know, I know you've spent a lot of time in Africa, and it was uh, literally life-changing for you. And and you have a really good understanding of. Predator management and what needs to be done, you know, on on the other side of the world as well. So, looking forward to hearing your perspective on that tonight.
3: Thank you. I appreciate you having me here and it's good to see you again. And um, I look forward to chatting and hearing from everybody else as well.
0: Awesome. So, now the husband and wife team. So, I was just thinking this is cool. We're going to have. Uh, Jana and John on, and this will be the first podcast uh, after the wedding. But they both on podcasts. It sounds like already, but probably the first one is a married couple. So that's yeah. gonna be our claim to fame. That might be the title of this one. But uh, um, that said, despite the fact that you guys are newly married, and congratulations! By the way, um, you both are very well known in your own entities. And uh, Jana will start with you, the executive producer and host of Skullbound TV and Skullbound Chronicles. Um, Fourteen seasons on the air, phenomenal. Uh, lifelong hunter I know you're uh, a hardcore predator um, uh, target individual you're out there hustling after the bears all the time and, and doing a great job and knocking them down um, and also Jana the the one thing that I thought was really cool and, and John brought this to attention was your involvement with uh, Montana and the government there and being on the uh, on the advisory board there working for the Montana Wildlife Commission and uh, we're really excited to hear that perspective from you tonight.
4: Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, it, well, my term is, is over. I served the term as a Montana Wildlife Commissioner, but it was, um, it was really an honor and very eye-opening to see that side of wildlife management. Um, but uh, yeah, I just moved from Montana to Utah and uh, primarily a big game hunter, huge into predator hunting. I don't think I'd be married to this guy if I wasn't, <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's an honor to be here on this panel. So thank you for having me.
0: Awesome. Really happy about it. And John, John Bear, I obviously don't need a ton of introduction. You're pretty well known in the hunting and conservation community. Uh, but that said, uh, we hear the the word knife maker, electrician, but really uh, auctioneer is one of them and conservationist at large. Um, you know, when I look you up on the internet, we find more on conservation than than anything really. But if you go to any of the shows, Uh, Any of the shows that you want to be at, there's you up there selling some high dollar hunts and making a lot of money for conservation. So really inspiring, John. But one of the things we know you well for is your predator management and, uh, you know, you're really passionate about it. And also, we know that you've been very involved with Utah and the commission there. Uh, You were on the board of directors for the commission, I believe, appointed by the governor. Do I have that right, John? Is my terminology correct? Yes.
5: Well, yeah. So Utah has five different regions, and each region has a regional advisory council. I served on a regional advisory council in the central region for eight years as a sportsman's rep, and then the governor appointed me to the Utah Wildlife Board. Like Montana has a commission, and Idaho has a commission, and whatnot. Utah has a wildlife board, and I served there for six years and was fortunate enough to be the chairman for a couple of years, and very involved in uh, wildlife management. Most people, like Jack said, he's a professional talker. Most people know me for talking and selling stuff, but actually, I got into all that through wildlife management and being passionate about wildlife. And you know, I—if you told me I could only hunt one thing the rest of my life, it'd definitely be predators. So <laughs> glad to be here.
0: Uh, it sounds like we got the right group of people at the table then tonight. So, um, uh, you know, so one of the things I'm hoping to do tonight is is sort of do a bit of a deeper dive into predator management, um, sort of the ins and outs, uh, the do's and don'ts. I think we're all kind of like managed, minded on this uh, podcast and that we believe that some sort of uh, predator management is important on the landscape as and wildlife management is. That's why we I think we're involved as conservationists. Um, but what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to throw some of the subjects out there that we see come up uh, quite often, uh, questions that I've kind of heard from friends of mine they are not hunters that maybe don't really understand, and um, sort of maybe dig a little deeper in some of these. And what I'm hoping to do is is get a broader perspective on, on why we manage predators the way we do, and then maybe have some of the arguments that we can take to our friends and family and, and maybe even people we meet on the street and sort of do a better job of articulating you know, why it is important that we can manage wildlife and manage predators the way we do. So um, I'm going to kick this off and I'm going to share an excerpt. And there was an abstract, it was a document, it's called Managing Predator Prey Systems. And it was written by Mark Boyce and Robert Byrne. And I found it to be a very balanced article. And I'm going to share it with you here. And it's kind of give us perspective um, on some of the, the issues that managers face when it comes to predator management. And, uh, and then we'll maybe sort of dig a little bit deeper into some of these issues. So Uh, A quote from their document, uh, Managing predator prey systems involves complex challenges for resource managers. Inherently dynamic population fluctuations, multi-species interactions, and trophic cascades make it difficult to anticipate the outcome of wildlife management activities and decisions. When combined with the economic, socio-political dimensions of predator control, identifying optimal management policies can frustrate the most seasoned wildlife biologists. Wildlife bio- managers are increasingly being challenged to accommodate a broader perspective of ecosystem management. Many studies have demonstrated population consequences of predators on prey population, but how managers should use this information is not easy to decide. Predator control can be effective in enhancing survival and recruitment in populations of prey, but certain methods of con- for controlling predators sometimes meet with fierce resistance from the public. Society demands that wildlife managers take a broader perspective on predator management Than focusing solely on enhancing populations of those species preferred for hunting. So that kind of lays the groundwork of some of the things that certainly we're dealing with in British Columbia. I know the West Coast of the U.S., there's a lot of issues with that as well. And there's kind of been a a pushback. You know, for years, it was kind of understood that, yeah, you had to manage populations on the landscape. And it seems that there's been increasing pressure from sort of the anti-hunting contingent and sort of, you know, certainly pro-wolf groups and, and groups like that um, against that, uh, that perspective. And so that's some of the things I'm hoping to explore tonight. So I think we'll just open it up with that and just, you know, that's kind of set the basis of where we want to go tonight and we can take it in any direction. So, um, I'd love to hear your guys's perspective. If anyone who wants to jump in and and take the first kick of the cat, I'd love to hear from you. Well,
4: I'll, I'll, uh, I'll throw a rock in the pond, I guess. Uh,
5: you know, we, It seems like the one that's in the news nationally down here and particularly in Colorado right now and being a neighbor of Colorado, we have some real concerns is the wolf issue, but it's not a new issue to any of us by any means. You know, 20 years ago, I got a phone call that I didn't recognize from New York when I was kind of new to cell phones and didn't understand the whole screen your calls concept. And it was a reporter from the New York Times and uh, he got my name off of our sportsman's website and he says, do you mind if I ask you some wolf questions? I said, no, that's that's fine. And he said, what do you think about the wolf issue? I says, Uh, I says, I think they're beautiful animals. They're amazing. I like the idea that there's places in the world where there are wolves. I says, but I think a lot of times and speaking specifically for here in the Western U.S., I said, I don't know that it's so much about the wolf as it is what they can do with the wolf. And he says, explain that to me. I says, I think the wolf is their silver bullet to kill the culture of the West. And he goes, I'm listening. And he actually quoted me very accurately on this, which was a, I found out when they put it in the New York times, it was an extremely unpopular opinion (laughs) that, uh, you know, they they use the wolf politically to, uh, you know, to hamper grazing and energy development and timber and, uh, you know, hunting and trapping and all these things that we deal with. And so I think that when you dig right down to the bottom of the issue, you're dealing with a lot of different kinds of people. I, I love to hunt wolves as of yet. I don't have one on the wall, but I've went more than once. Uh, I like the idea that there's wolves to hunt. I understand that wolves can be very devastating on ungulate populations; that they need to be managed. And I know a lot of hunters that uh, kind of feel the same way. I know people that are non-hunters that pretty much feel the same way. And then I know people that don't believe in really any kind of hunting, and they'll take that issue and massage it any way they can to reduce the number of wolves getting harvested anywhere that anywhere they can i know when janna was dealing with the wolf issue in montana and they'd say you know well the region's right outside of yellowstone you know it says in the management plan that we have to manage to a specific number and i remember telling me you know a hundred times that they would always email her and say zero is a number that's the number we want is zero so there really is a really a broad broad uh bunch of uh, view of of how to manage. Another real popular issue in Utah is mountain lions and we've done tons of caller work in Utah. We've put out over 10,000 radio callers since 2015 on deer, elk, uh, mountain lions, bears, all this and we are really finding that Mountain lions in certain situations have just an incredible impact on deer. And if you lower the population to a certain point for a little while, the deer really bounce back and then you can take the pressure off the mountain lions. And, you know, on paper, that's, you know, that's easy for me and you to see. But when you go to the public meetings and you get people that maybe aren't diehard deer hunters and the thought of having big bucks and big rams aren't that big of an issue to them, they're really concerned about the number of lions that are in the harvest every year and those are really challenging issues for wildlife managers you know for all the hunting organizations that we're all part of to deal with I know that the governor of Utah very well and his office has had a real challenge you know trying to navigate those waters uh, with the legislature and whatnot and it's You usually don't have to go very far in a conversation with somebody and bring up predator management. And you will find that just about anybody that likes to go outside has an opinion and they're they're pretty aware of what their opinion is.
3: I have a unique perspective from the whole wolf thing, because (laughs) I don't know if I'm safe to say this here, but I was a wolf advocate in my 20s. I sent all the money. I did, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then that's when I lived in Pennsylvania and my brothers were deer hunters, but, you know, they show those cute, cuddly pictures of those wolves. And so fast forward 10 years, I end up marrying a hunter in the middle of Idaho and I'm thrust right in the middle of wolf country. And I saw what happened with that wolf population as they moved into Idaho I saw our the wolf or the um the elk population just drastically decline along with the moose and everything so it gave me both perspectives and I think that's what I wish people could see is put their cells in the place of the people who are living there and of the animals because there's just just always two perspectives but it's easy for them to get there it's easy for them to win with that furry little picture to get people like me who care about um, things and their hearts are in the right place, but mm-hmm. they just don't understand management.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree with that. It reminds me right to, a couple of years ago, I was at my mom's in Wisconsin and I was, uh, she always has her mail always laying out on her kitchen table. And there was a save the wolf postcard with all these little pups on it. And I'm like, mom, why are you getting this? Who did you give money to, you know? I don't know, World Wildlife Federation or something. I'm like, mom, you've got to stop it. If you if you really want to give back to animals, do it with a conservation group like Wild Sheep or Mule Deer Foundation or Rocky Mountain Elk or SFW. Or there, I know where your money's going. I know it's not propaganda. I know that it's coming from a perspective of wildlife management. And yeah, you're right. They, You're right and, and Sue's right. They use predators as such a tool for mm. their anti-hunting objectives. And the I saw, it. oh yeah, oh yeah. I Tons saw, it. Money. but you're right. Their hearts are in the right place. I mean, I I saw it as a Montana wildlife commissioner. I had to meet with the wolf loving groups as well as the hunting groups and the outfitters. And um, there has to be a way that uh, we can have good open dialogue. Unfortunately on social media, that doesn't often happen. Most of the anti start their messages to me out with a C word or a B word, and they're just going to get blocked and
5: cute and beautiful. What are you talking about?
4: <laughs> uh, yeah, no,
5: you can go so many ways,
4: <laughs> but um, no, to your point, it is so misunderstood by people who don't live in a hunting family or lifestyle.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Renee, from your perspective, you you know, you mentioned you were an adult onset hunter, you know, never really got involved until your forties. What was your perspective coming in from, you know, not having come from a hunting family and sort of the whole predator piece and, you know, hunting bears and, and killing wolves and that sort of stuff. What, what was it like for you?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, initially at first I, I um, I, I'll be honest with you, I was pretty conflicted and I definitely didn't really understand um, the importance of predator management when I was, first starting my journey but I had a really uh, important early conversation I had joined a local hunt club in the Calgary area and I went to a wild game banquet and I ended up because I was on my own I ended up being seated at this table of 10 there were nine men all over the age of 70 and me and anyway, I swear to god it was the best table to be at because I heard the greatest stories all night right and um anyway I, I the gentleman to my right I remember asking him I because of course they served um, a cornucopia of wild game and bear was on the menu and I and so was uh, mountain lion and I was like I was feeling some trepidation about even tasting it you know I and um and he was really sweet so I said you know I'm a little nervous and and uh, about eating this. And he said, uh, what's, you know, what's your reservation? I said, I don't know. Like, I'm not sure actually, you know, and, and uh, I said, I don't really know how I feel about predator hunting. And I was, you know, Sue, I was really, really kind of caught up in Africa and really confused about hunting Africa. And he said this great thing to me that just resonated. And I carried it from that moment forward. And I think was really pivotal, pivotal in my ability to go hunt bear from my very first hunt and what he shared with me was his opinion that you know if you're going to choose to hunt then you need to be supportive of all hunting because as long as it's legal right to be clear as long as it's legal and being and part of a proper management fund then um, you'd best be a little careful judging one type of hunting over another Right. So that was the first thing he said. And then that conversation, you know, broadened into the importance of predator hunting and some early concepts that I was able to listen to. And then I did a bunch of reading on my own, but that, you know, it, it, I, you know, I think I'm glad I had the open, at least I was open enough in my mind to ask the question. And, you know, when I'm listening to the, these early comments we're already sharing, I wish that was just part of our dialogue that we were able to have is just a little bit tone it down know i understand people get super emotional about predator hunting and i agree that their hearts are in the right places but it would be nice if they came in just a little bit more level-headed and willing to listen to a different perspective and maybe reach some common ground does that help kyle
0: yeah it's fantastic grenay and it's interesting that and it goes both ways right like it's from that side too but on our side too I find sometimes the way we articulate what we do and some of the things that we say around predator management is, uh, I just shudder when I hear some people talk about it. And, you know, yeah, you can talk that way, but also, you know, when when they come after you and they don't want you hunting them anymore and you wonder why, It you know, sometimes there's little little doubt in my mind because of the, some of the things we say and do and um, in front of the non-hunting public. They, we just don't give them the best impression of what it's all about. Um, But anyway, we can touch on that um, in a bit. The one thing I wanted to touch about was, um, um, you know, the interesting thing with predator hunting is that the, the, the gentleman said, you know, we have to support all hunting. And I agree with that. I do but one of the things I heard when we lost the grizzly bear hunt here in BC is that this is the best thing that ever happened because people are going to go away with the grizzly bear and they're not going to bug us about the other predators, um, or, or as hunting as much that pred- uh, grizzly bear hunting is so emotive that that's the vector for all these anti hunting groups. So I'm, I'm curious to hear the perspective on, on this group, on what your thoughts are on something like that. Um, if we were to tone that stuff down, so, and, and here's the, the contrary to that, um, these predator hunt, um, uh, Contests that we have, right? Like you know, you go out and see how many people can kill how many uh, wolves or coyotes or whatever the case may be. Um, how damaging is that to our social license? So wh- where's that fine line of you know it's legal to go out and kill as many maybe coyotes as you want in the winter time, and it's legal to have a contest, but is it the right thing? So so where do you draw that line? It's a bit of a, a come a difficult uh line to walk and in the perfect world it wouldn't be an issue but i think it is an issue so i'd love to hear you guys' perspective on that
2: kyle i'd like to i'd like to talk a bit
4: awesome
2: if you don't mind i you know i i i'm in my late 60s now and i started hunting in my early 60s in, in the early 60s and it was a different era uh it was a period when uh uh, wildlife manage, management was really in its infancy. It was after World War II that people really had the time and money uh, to start going out and asking questions. And we didn't have the wildlife, and we had game departments starting to develop and be funded by hunting dollars. And, uh, and, and in that era, uh, before 1972, when the Endangered Species Act was created, was an era that was full. Of wolfing, poisoning predators, our our wildlife management teams were, uh, uh, they, did, they didn't have a predator component to even study. I mean, grizzlies were almost absent from the, this was the landscape in uh, the western United States, wolves were gone, mountain lions were gone, virtually gone. You saw coyotes, and coyotes were flourishing. Because they didn't have to compete with the bigger predators, there were some black bears. So, uh, so, so there was there was a period within the science of wildlife management. They couldn't study predators because predators weren't a factor. And and the, and, and 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 this really uh, it took until the 1980s that I uh, when all of a sudden we start seeing more mountain lions in Montana, and I think. Uh, In the mid 1980s, they took 800 mountain lions in one year out of Montana. And I see in the last 10 years in Africa, CITES issued 3,100 leopard licenses for an entire continent. So you, you, you start looking at, okay, what's happened? Every 10 years, you guys are all hunters and you see things change. Every 10 years, areas burn, landscapes change, animals win, they lose. Things evolve, so if, if this is a uh, this is going to be an ongoing thing forever. But if you can understand uh, how uh, predators play into it in the present, we have now we have predators, Pre- uh, uh, and 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 our biologists, like uh, you've quoted uh, Mark Boyce's uh, paper, a lot of them are, are digging into this predator impact thing, uh, it, it, and it's real. And and each animal has its own nemesis on what predator. Uh, will be selecting them. Eagles really like sheep and goats. They really like them. I can tell you from personal experience, I have seen two gold eagles land on fawn deer. uh, I'm talking in September, October, when they're 60 pounds, two of them at one time land on their back and the deer running down the hill with eagles embedded on their back. I've seen them kill spike elk. I've seen them kill lots of antelope over the years. Eagles are a big, big issue. And, uh, but, uh, you know, then you get down to, you know, the other animals and their impacts. So as hunters, you, you can look at, if you're going to defend something, you you want to dig into uh, the, the roots of the problems and build a foundation on it too. I think too, uh, that our, our wildlife managers are just now starting to really, uh, develop the science of uh, predator impact and predator management, and how you might help uh, in certain areas. And and uh, you know we got to let them do their work. That's we got to support their time. They're they're patient. They're slow, but they do a good job. And they they'll defend our ability. We need science to defend our uh, right to hunt predators and the need to hunt predators. I I don't like bullies to me predators are badass bullies and uh, and that's what makes me mad is to see a, a big black bear jump on a elk that's 20 minutes old and kill the thing it just drives me nuts so i've had a war with black bears for since i was 12 years old let's put it that way so i i, I mean I, I would say that's the big thing you want to look at open your mind to uh, how the big picture of things how this all plays together is Abundant wildlife is going to mean abundant predators. So, and, and, and you have to be able to manage a predator at the same level that you'd manage a deer or an elk and, and the animals that need super uh, additional effort like that. We have, we have 5,000, 6,000 bighorn sheep in Montana and people are bitching about only 75,000 uh, sage in the state. I mean, come on, you know, there's more, there's almost as many black bears in Montana as there are bighorns. So uh, if you if you look at the uh, uh, the building blocks of all this, you can do, you can build a, uh, a argument that people can understand. Why do we need to uh, help bighorns? Well, they could. There's no guarantee they aren't going to make it. You know uh, that they might they might not they might snuff out if we don't help them. I mean, if you you see more houses built on winter ranges and so forth, you know these are these are the big questions, and that's where the battle needs to be. And, and in a formed way, so you want to dig, in, empower your your wildlife managers, make sure they're 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 doing science-based, peer-reviewed studies on wildlife, so you have some uh, magic bullets that you can use, and 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 you can uh, out talk somebody that's just you know this mindless babble here on a- I'm not hunting predators. This is my two bits worth on on uh, what hunters can do. Just educate. You know, we we know there's a problem. You know, use science as much as you can and and understand it. Uh, so uh, a better, it just, it just make you a better ambassador of uh, uh, of the balance of hunting predators and ungulates at the same time, and 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 why why it is a good idea. So I mean, and, and it is a good idea. So that's my two bits worth. Line 1972 forward, game changer everywhere. When I started working for my father in the 70s, a grizzly bear, even in Alaska or Canada, was one of the hardest things for a person to get. I mean, it was like, well, you might go for two weeks and never see one. There weren't many around. I'm not really sure why there weren't many around. Now you get into a lot of areas of Alaska, you can shoot two. Alaska has shot, uh, I think, somewhere around three or 400 bears uh, recently, over in the Malchatna River area, because their caribou population is about to snuff out, and they did that from a helicopter. I mean, they're trying to save a species and a herd of animals that people are dependent on, and and the bears are are flourishing. I mean, like, why? So, anyway, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop talking. But this is my perspective. Educate yourself. Dig. Support your science guys. They fight our fight big time. So that's my two bits.
3: Can, can I just some, add one small points. thing to that? I mean, like science is so important and it, it is the backbone of everything. But I think hunters need to incorporate that into more into stories, too, because unfortunately, facts and figures don't win the minds and hearts of non-hunters. So if you can incorporate those facts into stories or like you were talking about seeing those bear the elk and stuff I mean I think that people non-hunters relate to those kind of things better than they do facts and statistics at least in from my perspective and what I've seen I mean that's just my you know that's just my two cents for mean, like you said facts are so important but I, if we could just incorporate yep. the stories to go with them. Well, well, well,
2: well, well you know, the story, and you're right, you know the, the fact is, I mean, grizzly bears in Yellowstone probably kill 90% of the calf elk in the first 30 days of their life, and then the wolves catch the rest of them uh, over the, the next few months. So, uh, you know, it, 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 yeah, you know it, I mean, the, 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 the juveniles are the most vulnerable. And, and you're right. I mean, you can, you can build that into your argument uh, uh, that uh, because that is the fact without the young carrying forward, you need 30, 40% of a, of an ungulate population to survive each year in order for the animals to carry on. And and you see that all over the world. Everywhere I go in the world as a hunter. You have the same issues. Uh, I mean, there's, you you know, predator hunting is discouraged. But at the end of the day, I mean, you, you've uh, where, where's the balance? And, and finding that balance is, is not easy. And being an ambassador of it, then you need to. Uh, I, I mean, if it's if it's babies, I mean, it, we are talking babies. We're talking. I mean, they aren't a month old, and most of them are. Most of them are snuffed out by a bear, or and, and 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 then the other predators come in and they get their turn later on. So you're you're absolutely right. So good point.
0: Good point, Jack and Sue. Uh, John.
5: So, uh, just to back up just a minute. First off, I I love everything Jack uh, just said. Yeah, you know, I've always been a Jack Atchison fan, and I love him even more now. I love everything he just said. Uh, he talked a lot about the science, and and you talked a little bit about the uh, you know the coyote contests. And I got a few trophies around here from placing in coyote contests. That's something I've loved to do. For years and years, and you know, you never really heard about it until uh, until social media got uh, got fired up, and people's uh, need to show off. And I'm as guilty as anybody, you know. But there's definitely a, a negative that that can go along with those kind of things when we, you know, you show trailers of, of dead coyotes at a contest or something, and, and that kind of stuff's very distasteful, not just to non-hunters, like my oldest daughter who is as pro hunting as anybody who doesn't hunt but she's very pro hunting she looks at that and thinks you know i don't think that's a good representation i don't know that that's something that you want to put out there and that that's you know you want to put your name on that and uh, you know so i think as hunters we definitely need to look at what we're doing social media wise you know uh and how we promote hunting is incredibly important it is ultimately, in the end, the non-hunters that vote that are going to decide whether we hunt or not. You look at the wolf issue in Colorado. Colorado voted in wolf reintroduction by thirty thousand votes, and in the big scheme of things, that is not very many. Uh, you know, and and most of those people aren't hunters, but they, you know, how they view hunting is ultimately one day going to decide whether we hunt or not. You know, I know you kind of deal with that kind of stuff with the grizzly bear up in BC, you know, and the the uh, the politics of it all. Jack mentioned the science. I have great hope for the science that's going on right now. I mentioned here in Utah that over, since 2015, we have put almost 11,000 radio callers out on the landscape on these animals. And I talked to the biologists yesterday and they've been out, collar and deer uh specifically right now like crazy they put an implant in the pregnant doe when she has the fawn the implant sends a signal that says how to fawn here's the location uh you give them a day or two to bond so that you don't have an abandonment issue then you go catch the fawn you put a radio collar on him actually it's a bluetooth collar that links up to the doe's radio collar and the doe's collar sends the information in and uh we are getting real-time data. Mortality uh, signals come in in a matter of hours. We're out there within a day to see what's killing those fawns. Are they dying, uh, you know, is, is it a habitat issue? Are they, are they, is their mama sick and can't take care of them? Is it coyotes? Is it eagles? Is it lions? Is it bears? And I think we are, you know, this kind of an example of, of something that we've spent a ton of money on and a ton of effort. And I really think the science uh, is going to swing our way, uh, you know in favor of, of the need for, you know, scientific predator management for lack of a better term. The same biologist told me he says, you know, on this certain unit of the South Manti, he says we found that on most of these units, particularly the South Manti, where our deer were really hurt, if we can keep the lion uh, mortality on the adult, Uh, deer down there. If we can keep that, the number of lion kill on the adult deer down there below 8%, our deer herd will increase. Once we let that creep above 8% lion mortality, then our deer herd decreases. And he says, we studied that for a couple of years. We'd hammer the lions pretty hard and our deer herd would jump. The adult survival would jump. We'd back off on the lions. Within two years, it'd start to slack off. So they went in and got real aggressive with the lions and the adult survival jumped up into the 90 percentile for a couple years and now that deer herd is really making making some strides you know and I feel like I'm always trying to spin things in you know as as a predator hunter and so I'm just going to throw it out there I spend more days hunting predators in a year than I ever will hunting deer elk sheep and I love to hunt all that stuff as a somebody that's very Proactive and getting new people hunting and, and taking people that have been interested in, in hunting and not had the, the opportunity. There is a lot of opportunity on the landscape to hunt in the predator world. You know, Renee said she, her first. Hunt was a bear hunt. Me and Jana have probably spent more days hunting bears and coyotes together than we have anything else.
4: Well, someone comes and sits on my baits, you
5: know. Well, somebody has a good wife that takes care of the baits for. So, you know, there is a lot of opportunity. And it's not just, uh, you know, just the fact that we're managing them to help the other animals. Predator hunting is fun. You learn more about bear behavior by hunting bears than you ever will watching, you know, National Geographic.
4: And the the non hunters don't, don't understand that connection. Like I love bears. I love them so much. I love to watch them. I hunt bears more than any other big game species every year, Montana, Idaho, Alaska, Alberta, Saskatchewan. And, um, but I love them. And just because I may take one or two a year, I utilize all the meat. I love bear meat. Um, I utilize the hides, not just for mounts. I have pillows. I have clothing, you know, I use every bit of it. We use the bear grease, we render the bear grease for different things. It's such a, in fact, bear grease used to be um, a form of money back in the day, because it was so useful medicinally and um, so many great things that you could do cooking with it. But I think it's important to remember that non hunters, they, they don't understand, because they're not in our circles. So they, they, and they don't follow the social media groups that we all here follow. So they don't understand. And because they may see a lot of deer and turkeys and elk, they don't see necessarily bears, mountain lions, even coyotes or wolves. They don't see them on the landscape. So they think they're, you know, I I can't tell you how many times I've posted a picture of a mountain lion on a hunt and aren't those endangered? I'm like, no, it's actually an over-the-counter tag in Montana, you know, and now in Utah and they don't understand and they don't have anywhere to get that information. So I do think, like Sue mentioned, it's important for us when we are on social media to not only celebrate our kills, which, which we all do, but to educate a little bit about why, why we're hunting predators, what are we doing with them and how, you know, why is it okay in your mind to hunt deer, but I'm I can't hunt bear, I eat it, I use it, they need to be managed because those bears noses are 200 times stronger than ours and they can sniff out the deer fawns and the elk calves and the cattle and, you know, I think it's important to have those kind of stories on our social media, as well as face to face when we're talking with people.
1: I two points. I'd like to jump in if I can. Uh, I want to just go back to your earliest comment, Kyle, where you said when the grizzly bear ban was introduced in British Columbia, there was a segment of the hunting world that said, "Well, maybe that's a good thing. If we if they get the grizzlies, they won't they won't bother us about other predators we hunt." I, said, I think what you, I heard you say, Kyle, and I just wanted to just touch on that briefly and just say that, in my opinion, it's the direct opposite. the 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 efforts that are being made right now that's just step 1 of 2 of 3 of many many more and so it's uh it's really incumbent upon us to work with our legislators mm-hmm. and work precisely with those people who can affect change at the at the levels uh, at the state provincial and territorial levels where uh decisions are made that impact our ability to hunt them and you know we can do that in many different ways right but um, um uh, the other thing I just wanted to touch on too is, Jack, I really appreciated how you told uh, all of us about what it was like when you started hunting and the lack of predators on the landscape. And, you know, I just, I, I really just want to talk a little bit about, you know, if, if people can grasp the concept that animal populations ebb and flow with every aspect of our ecosystems that uh, things impact all of us, every living organism on this planet, I really think there needs to be a leap here in our detractors and understanding that our presence has a major impact as well. Right. So while our animal populations ebb and flow, ours just march on. I pulled up some really quick statistics, really, really dirty fast statistics about, um, you know, let's just start with um, how many millions of, or thousands of years have there been some sort of human presence on the planet. Right. It's been, you um, you know, our, our, our version of humanity, Homo sapiens, it's been over 200,000 years, 6,000 since civilization, right? Population of the planet jumped from a billion to 8 billion in about 130 years. That's astronomical, right? Population of the United States went from 100 million in 1900 to 330 million now, right? That's huge growth. Um, You know, I hunted my first black bear in Alberta, 2017. There were over 130,000 black bears in Alberta in 2017. Um, our population went from a million in the early 1900s to four and a half million currently, right? So I just think that I don't know how we do it. Because I agree with you, Sue, facts and numbers don't always resonate. Storytelling super important. But somewhere in that vein, you know, we, um, we are all impacting um, everything. And so it's when you talk about predator human conflicts and how we help manage those um nobody wants to see anybody get hurt right ever um but that that predator impact uh is felt across the spectrum and it's only just going to continue increasing so i think like merging some of that into our dialogue and impressing that is important too
3: you know and another thing people don't might non-hunters might not realize is that habitat loss is the number one threat to animals throughout the world. And so by them, not by ranchers, for instance, not being able to manage wolves or manage black bears and then them just sell out. What do you think happens to all that habitat? It goes to housing plans and subdivisions. So anything we can do to keep habitat in its natural form is critical to wildlife.
4: Uh,
5: listening to these amazing women that we have on here. uh, First off, it makes me realize that uh, we're very blessed to have them here and be part of our discussion. And a a great woman once told me that, uh, I mean, this one right here, (laughs) when we were were having a discussion that may or may not have been going my way, that uh, she told me delivery matters right? How you say <laughs> things matter. Delivery matters. Uh, as I sat on the wildlife board here in Utah and I would listen in the, in the cougar meetings and the bear meetings, the most contentious one we ever had was the crow meeting when we instituted a crow hunt. And there's people there and they're standing up at that microphone and they are just red in the face and they're furious and they don't understand why you're not doing exactly what they want. And they walk out of there and a lot of them are like, well, you're not listening to me. You're not listening to me. And I, I've, I told them, you know, a lot of times, no, I'm definitely listening to you. I just see things differently. And I think that as hunters, the dialogue that we have, especially now, uh, on social media, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to be really brave when you know, the person you're talking to can't get a hold of you. Uh, I didn't grow up with that luxury. Anytime I had that, a discussion with my dad, he could always reach me. And if I tried to run, he could always catch me. So, you know, I, and I think probably most of us grew up in that era where, you know, respect was an important thing. Even though we totally disagree, uh, you know, with somebody on their, on their issue or their view of hunting, the way we put forth our, viewpoints our opinions the way we talk to them it reflects on all hunting it doesn't just reflect on wolf hunters or coyote hunters the next time they see a gun rack in the back of the truck they're going to think oh well he that guy's one of them and that jerk that I talked to the other day you know it was a jerk and we kind of all get lumped into the same the same group and so I think it's really important and and you know I'm I've not always been the best ambassadors I think back but the way we put this, this uh, discussion out there, it's totally okay to disagree with people. It's okay. If they get upset, it's okay. If they call you names, it's fine. And like, you know, like people say all the time, you know, what happens when you get offended, nothing, nothing, you're just offended. So, you know, don't let them offend you, you know, know what you believe, know why you believe it, you know, do some homework, know what the facts are. And when uh, we have the opportunity to, Preach our side of the, uh, of the, sto- of the story or the issue, you know, do so with respect, use stories, you know, like you look in the, you know, if you look in the Bible, the most effective uh, way people ever taught in the Bible now. And, you know, and for a thousand of years is with parables and with stories. And I remember, you know, the things my dad and my grandpa taught me, not when they would give me numbers or facts, but when they'd relate it to a story. So I think the way we, we, we kind of put forth our side of the issue, you know, whatever that is, and that varies a little bit with all of us. It's really, really important. I I told a guy in the uh, crow meeting once that we have wildlife because we hunt wildlife. Oh, my heck, they all went crazy. The newspapers went crazy. I was the dumbest guy in Utah for a long time after that. But now, you know, the more I think about it, the truer that rings and resonates with me. And so I try to teach people that, you know, we, we have it because we hunt it. We have wildlife because we hunt wildlife. You know, all of us here are kind of diehard sheep freaks. Uh, there, it, it's never truer than, if, than when you look at the wild sheep. We have wild sheep because of the efforts of, of conservationists and hunters. That's just the facts. So we should be very proud of of what we've done, but we also need to show our issue respect by how we communicate
0: it and how we put it out there. Yeah, great points, John. Um, and, and you know, when we talk about image and perspective and what people are seeing, I'd like to hear a little bit from Renee through Women Hunt and Jana through Skullbound Chronicles. And you know, you've been on, you're on TV. People are looking at you. Um, so they're, they're looking to these, the two of you, um, as influencers, as, uh, leaders in our community for what we're doing and, and how important is that image. And, and especially on some of these emotive topics, like, uh, you know, maybe sitting on a bear bait with a pistol, like that, that can get some people a little bit worked up. So, um, Renee, Jana, either one of you guys can jump in on that and talk a little bit about the importance of that and how you portray that, uh, publicly.
4: Go ahead, Jana. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, it's, it's obvious. Anytime um, I post a predator hunt, whether it be baiting bears or mountain lions, or even coyotes, that is when typically the haters come out of the woodwork and the antis. And, you know, I have learned over the years, and uh, this is the advice I give a lot of young, new hunters, that it depends on how someone is commenting on my stuff, you know, definitely the predator side brings out the name calling the rude comments and stuff and i used to 10 years ago get into it with them right and i used to fight with them on social media and such because i am such a right fighter and i'm such i'm so passionate about hunting and and in such but now if it's got swear words in it names in it rude comments i just simply block the person and erase the comment if on the other hand it says oh, I thought those were endangered, or or even someone says something like, how could you do that? That's not name calling or, you know, swearing or such. So I will go in and explain. Well, I can do that because of what I've learned over the years, especially in the last 14 years living out West about the effects predators have and try to explain it. And once in a while, I'll really have a nice dialogue with someone uh, who just did not understand. I also think it's very ironic when I get comments from hunters and it seems to be very, um, hunters from from the East or from like the South will say, like I'm a deer hunter, but I would never kill a bear or something like that. And those I'll definitely dialogue with and say, well, I started as a bird hunter, then a deer hunter and then graduated into everything else. And I used to actually come from that perspective. I remember 25 years ago, I, I remember thinking, I don't think I would ever bear hunt, you know, 17 bears later, like it's my biggest passion because I love them so much and because I understand the need to manage them and because it is such a challenge and, and because it is so useful. The fat, the meat, the hides, the claws, everything is useful. And uh, But it, it, it can be hard to open up that dialogue with people. Definitely the predators bring out the antis like nothing, but it also gives us the opportunity to have those discussions. Um, and I think it's like you said, all about delivery. How did they deliver their comments to you is important. And it's also important to have thick skin and stand tall and proud as hunters and to be able to say, Hey, I'm sorry, you feel like that. Can we talk about it? Can I, can I explain to you the number of bears in Montana or mountain lions in Utah? Or can I talk to you about a study they're doing right now on this sheep nursery and how there's 18 lions been killed within a, you know, 10,000 acre parcel, like 1800, 1800 parcel. So, yeah. So, I mean, it. It 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 definitely brings out the antis, but I think it gives us an opportunity as well. What do you think, Brittany?
1: Yeah, I agree. well, hundred percent agree, and uh, also appreciate. Uh, I always love hearing how somebody uh, grows in their journey. I learned something, you know. And uh, I appreciate you sharing how you used to get into it with them, and now you're just, you know, where where there's value, that's where I put my energy, right? Um, and I and I kind of want to riff on that a little bit, Kyle. You know, I. I think we all know, I think the number has shifted a little bit, but essentially for well over a century, the dialogue around hunting, anti-hunters, neutrality hunters has kind of been consistent somewhere in that, you know, 80% of the population is okay with it. They don't hunt. And then there's the other ends of the spectrum and that number shifts a little bit. And I think that, you know, I think we need to recognize that we're not going to move that opposite end of the spectrum. And, and they're not going to move us and we're not going to move them. And it's that middle ground. And I think where I really feel some um, optimism around the topic of predator hunting is when I, even in my short time in this industry, you know, when I came in in late 2016, early 2017, up in Alberta, there were very few women who went out to these hunting clubs or the Wild Sheep Foundation Alberta chapter events. My first one, there was one of six. I was one of six women at the Friday night social right now you go there and it's like half the room which is great but even in that short time right and I would just want to say is that even since I started my motivation for beginning to hunt was strictly about sourcing protein it has definitely evolved since then but that was what brought me to the table and I, I compare what the dialogue was like on social media in 2017 to what it is today and there is a tangible real observable shift in accepting hunters who want to source protein that's been a change and even since 2017 and where my optimism is that i think that if we just keep doing really good work at positive messaging good stories respectful images uh, um, influencing legislators science uh all that all those very good things i really do feel optimistic that that pendulum is going to also switch eventually in understanding the importance of predator hunting hunting you know if we keep a nice even keel and do all those good things and talk about how we eat them as well right um or utilize parts of their bodies or otherwise and how we use them Um, I just wanted to share that, that I really do have a sense of optimism. Maybe it'll take longer to get there because it is so polarizing, but I know, I, I know sheep hunting friends in Alberta when I met them six years ago would have never gone on bear hunts and they're bear hunting now. So.
0: Awesome. Really good comments, ladies. Thank you both for that. Um, I just want to, changed tact a little bit here and and we talked a lot about uh you know our outward uh, image and and communicating about predator hunting which is all important stuff uh, but when it, we come back to just the management itself um and jack i was curious to see what your perspective was in montana in british columbia what we're seeing here right now is that um you know caribou are in decline and uh unfortunately wildlife manager is the only tool that they have for managing uh wildlife for managing predators is effectively through the species at risk. So caribou were dropped to a certain level, they became a species at risk, and then they could go out and that. now we're seeing aerial calls and they can do be more proactive in their management. Uh, typically, they can't do anything more than that when it comes to predators, other than indirectly influencing it. But really at the core of that, the issue is habitat loss, which we talked about earlier. So industry, mining, logging, all these other things. Um, have you seen that in Montana and sort of uh, you know, are you seeing an influx in predators with more, uh, more ungulates on the landscape? Is it influenced by, uh, industry and there is this argument, so it's kind of a two-part question. So what are you seeing on the landscape? And then also, um, are we, are they, are they, is, can they tackle the industry issue or is it, do we just have to be removing predators off the landscape? Is that the main, the main thrust of what we need to do?
2: Well, you know that you know habitat is a big, a big thing. But habitat is in a, in a cold environment like Canada and Montana, where you have a, a, a such a defined winter season. Is and most of the western United States has this issue. Winter range is really the habitat that's the most critical. You know the old rule of thumb was, uh, uh, you know, 90 percent of the wildlife population survives on 10 percent of the landscape in the wintertime. Well, I think it's more like five percent of the landscape. So, I mean, the eyes, the eye, all eyes should be on winter landscape and how those animals can tackle uh, a long, hard winter, or or that follows a long, hard drought, or which we seem to be having one after the other. And but they've always been there. I've, been, I've lived in Montana all my life. There's been big bad droughts, big bad winters. That's just the way it is. And, and 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 the uh, nutrition in animal gifts that ma- means disaster or success, it might be a 10% difference on the landscape and and, and how they can get through the winter. When I, One of the areas I hunted a lot as a young kid, I liked to hunt ed, mule deer a lot. And we had these late seasons in Montana. There were thousands and thousands of deer. There were no elk. You hardly ever saw an elk. This is in southwest Montana. And we were hunting down in the... Uh, The uh, uh, Jefferson River drainage uh, basin here, and and the winter the season would be uh, in uh, December, January, and February, and there and literally was nothing to see. uh, 1,000, 2,000 mule deer a day. Well, I was back there this fall on a December muzzleloader elk hunt, and it's really interesting where there was 1,500 mule deer, now there's 1,500 elk. The elk of there's only so many animals can survive on the landscape. And the mule deer are gone. There might be 50, 75 mule deer in that area. So, I mean, it's, you got to remember this, this is really dynamic stuff. And uh, so, as, 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 as we uh, focus as hunters in the future, I think there's got to be a lot more uh, focus on uh, winter survival areas. I don't want to call them a winter, area, a winter range, winter survival areas. For those caribou up in your area, I like. I used to love to ski. I'd go up in the caribou and Monashie Mountains up in your neighborhood, and they'd fly me up on a helicopter, and I'd ski down off those mountains, and I loved it. You know, I saw caribou up there from a helicopter and goats, and they're on 20 feet of snow, and those helicopters disrupted those animals. There's no question. I was worried about it then. I'm a lot more worried about it now. That 10% they need to get through the winter. How do we make sure they retain that 10% advantage? So, winter survival is a is a really key deal, and that also plays in. Why do we need predator management? Because that 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 winter period. That's when predator management might be the most critical, because we've seen. Uh, uh, you know, I've got photographs of. Uh, uh, of uh, up in the uh, in Alaska this is back in the 70s a pack of wolves knocked down 22 uh, adult uh, doll sheep rams at one time they ran them down in deep snow they fed on them and they walked away I mean they never never even used them but uh, if if you're going to have predator management and habitat issues you've got to really, laser focused on when the animals are most vulnerability. And that's the key to this, and the even though the whole predator issue, vulnerability. And how do you uh you know, protect animals? Uh you know, in, in a, so many people around, like uh, Renee said, and vulnerability uh, uh, of the animals during their weakest period, and how how predators, I mean, we in Montana, we have winter ranges where we close them to human activity the 1st of uh, December, and you can't go back there until May 15th when green up starts. You can't go horn hunting, you can't go skiing. It's a quiet place to give the animals that little bit of an edge. It, it doesn't have to be a giant area. Maybe it's a uh, you know, uh, uh, 10, 10, 10 by 10 mile area or a one by one mile area. On bighorns, it might be a, 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 a two by half a mile ridge is all it takes. But I I think that's, we have to be a little more uh, uh, understanding of what the the needs of our, our elk and deer and uh, game birds or whatever in the winter time and their vulnerability and being able to predator management, that's when it really is going to be critical. So I I guess that would be the, the, the advice I would have to uh, hunters is to, uh, you know, I, I, I look at this, uh, uh, The uh, the predator management we're we're like in first generation predator management right now. That's how I look at it. They just started this in the last 20 years, really digging into it and understanding the you know how you know the role of predators and how they might uh, impact it. And to me, it's really simple: giving the animals a quiet place in the winter, and 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 making sure that a pack of wolves can't go in and run them off that that critical winter range or a snowmobile can't run it off. I'm a snowmobile or a steer, I get it. But I mean, it, it doesn't mean you have to close an entire mountain range. It's, it's there, there are gonna be areas that are more favorable for an animal to survive. And, and I, so I guess that's, that's what I would say. It, it, it's a, a little, just a little more understanding what a winter range looks like for each species is probably the, the biggest challenge for wildlife managers and hunters, hunters should ask those questions. What does what does critical winter range look like? It's a survival zone, is what it is. So that's that's my perspective on it. So,
0: yeah, really good points, Jack. And I'm, I'm kind of curious on that note. And Jana, John, you guys maybe are are better prepared to to discuss this. Is when you guys were with the commission, what what did tools did wildlife managers have for predator management obviously tags right you can give out more tags more bear tags that sort of stuff um but you know in bc you got general open for cougars you got general open for i guess you could make more generous seasons but um but is it was there an opportunity to to do predator management was there call opportunities um can you use them in utah or montana as tools
4: yeah absolutely um uh, my short term as a wildlife commissioner, the one thing that we did do as a commission was we changed the way the mountain lion season structure is run in Montana, and it gives definitely, in my opinion, more opportunity for hunters to harvest lions. And um, it's it's complex. It, you know, like Jack said, this every issue is complex. Weather, um, human encroachment um predator predation it all is so ebbing and flowing and like john mentioned i think that earlier all these all the ungulates are they ebb and flow as well um so it is really complex but yeah there's tools that the commission or the the uh board did you call it board um can do um one, one thing that as listeners out there may be wondering what they can do, what I saw in Montana anyway is that there are a lot of people who will get online and bitch and complain about the commissioner or the biologist or my biologist in my region doesn't know anything and da, 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 they complain. but though I've gone on and I've said, well did you submit public comment? Did you go through the portal on Fishing Game and said no? Nah, they don't read them anyway, you know. And the negativity—I I could just see it as I'm reading the the comments on social media, whether it's personal or on Fishing Games page. Um, I would encourage any listener out there to get involved in their own states. Um, you can sign up for email email notifications to get updates to figure out what's going on in your own region. You can attend as they're open to the public. You can attend each region's meeting or RAC meeting. They're open to the public, right? Most of them? That's
5: why well, you have them to get public input.
4: Yeah. And I would encourage anyone who is passionate about it, whether it's predation or any other issue, to get involved. You know, Submit your comments through the portal. Go to the meetings. Um, and like Renee said earlier, a lot of it is who are you voting into office? Who are you voting into? You know, the, It's governor appointed as far as commissioners, but at the same time, Are you voting for governor and other positions? I think that's really important that we all get out there and vote and we get involved in our state's um, organizations, not just conservation groups, which I encourage as well, but get involved on the wildlife management side of things through your, whether it's DNR, Fish and Game, DWR, your state's organization.
5: You know, uh, the question you asked, what can we, you know, is there certain things we can do? In Utah, we're learning uh, through, especially through our collar study that each unit has different challenges. Some units it's coyotes, some units it's lions, some units it's, you know, it might be more black bears. If we will go out in the spring on the fawning and lambing grounds and kind of focus our predator management, and I'm talking the use of uh, government trappers, trying to focus the sportsman harvest with, uh, you know, with the bounty program we have, and focus on the fawning grounds get the coyotes off the fawning grounds uh you know you can you can definitely have a a positive impact if you're out shooting the coyotes out in the in the desert where there ain't that many deer or anything out there and they're living on mice and uh, and grasshoppers you know you're probably not saving a lot of fawns but if you focus that effort on fawning grounds and on calving grounds you know you can you can definitely uh definitely have a positive impact. And, you know, that's kind of the the science behind it. And when we observed on the, uh, the Cougar Management Plan Committee and the Black Bear Management Plan Committee here in the state of Utah, and for, you know, a couple nights a, a month for about a, a year it takes to put those plans together. Those are the things we look at, you know, how do we effectively focus our predator management? and you know, the key word there is management. It's not just predator annihilation. It's not just, you know, kill them all everywhere you can find them. It is, it is focus the management, focus the harvest where it does the ungulates the most good. Well, you know, and it depends on whether it's uh, sheep or deer. And, uh, you know, and then find a way to measure that. When we do a sheep transplant, you know, one of the first things we'll do is we got to make sure that there's no uh chance of domestic interaction so we don't get microplasm issues because that's obviously devastating but then the next thing we do is for a year or two before we transplant the sheep or translocate the sheep as we'll go in there and we'll put a lot of pressure on the mountain because we all know those sheep when you first uh, put them in a new area you know they don't know where to hide they don't know where the water is so much and they are much more susceptible to predation so to go in there, knock the predators down, give the sheep a chance to, uh, to get established, to learn, you know, kind of their, their territory a little bit, really, really helps in their survival. You know, and we're also finding that when Jack talked a lot about, you know, winter range and winter survival areas, he called them. When the deer come out of winter and into their fawning grounds in good shape, they are much more resilient and resistant to predation. If you know, if they're sick and they're not healthy and they, you know, they can't run, they can't jump, they're, they're not as apt to fight off coyotes or lions or whatever. You know, that has an effect. So there really is a lot of science to it. And as a commission or as a board or as a, a state or provincial agency, yeah, there's definitely things we can do. You can focus that. Uh, predator harvest, the pressure on the predators and, uh, you know, do your best to measure it and uh, find out what's, what's being effective. And the biologists really are, really are doing uh, a great job at trying to get to the bottom of that. I like how Jack said, you know, we really are learning to manage predators kind of as rookies in the game. You know, we, we haven't had predators like we have, you know, now for years and years. And so, We're all learning as we go, but we can definitely try to focus the pressure, help our ungulates, you know, whether it's, uh, well, there's a lot of different ways we can help them. So that when they come out of the winter, when they're fawning, when they're lambing, when they're calving, they're healthier and they're more resilient. All those things, all those things, you know, affect the predator management. Where do we need to focus it and how much of it do we need to do?
3: Do you mind if I jump in for a minute to talk about predators in Africa a little bit? Because the the importance of hunting and predators in Africa is a little bit different than here. I mean, I'm sure it does have an effect on the ungulate population as well. But in Africa, it's critical to have a value placed on lions and leopards and hyenas and those kind of animals because those people do not want to live with them in their backyard. So if there's no value to them, they will poison them, spear them. Um, imagine your kid running, to, walking to school, if you even have the opportunity to go to school and have to deal with lions on the way. They don't wanna live with them, but if you make them very valuable, it gives the local people a reason to find ways to live with these animals. Maybe they'll put their cattle in bomas at night or they'll do different things or they'll do their chores in the safest time of day. But we have to make them very valuable in Africa to, to protect them. So it's not just about ungulate control in Africa, it's much, much more critical because those animals um, are so much more life threatening. I'm not saying bears and those aren't they all are life threatening, but, you know, lions and um, leopards and and stuff is so more life threatening in Africa as far as that goes. So anyway, I just wanted to say that that it's just really important to have that value on, even though they are endangered. I mean, you know there's 20 less than twenty five thousand lions in the world, but that doesn't matter they still have to have a value on them and um anyway, just wanted to throw that in there that's
5: a good point Kyle, I have a question for you up there in BC if that's okay.
0: yeah, maybe Greg can answer it but uh yeah, let's do it
5: <laughs> So since the grizzly hunt got shut down and all of a sudden those bears become uh you know, if there's not really a value placed on them and they become more of a liability. Do you think that helps the the bears up there or does it ultimately put them at risk to, you know, maybe residents taking the issue into their own hands once in a while and, and dealing with the bear when otherwise, you know, that bear's worth, you know, 10 or 20 or $30,000, you know, to them.
0: Yeah, good question. You know, I, I don't have any... Uh solid evidence on that. I I know anecdotally I've heard that the numbers have gone up on problem bear removal significantly, but I don't have the stats to support that. And that'll be a good number for us to look up and maybe talk about on the next one. And maybe we get a a BC manager on to talk about that specifically. Um, You know, I've seen bears acting differently in the backcountry now than uh, in the past in my short time. It just um, I've hunted areas before I was grizzly hunting actually. And, and then, you know, after, after the band now and and their behavior is different for sure in some capacity. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, really that's the only experience that I have on that. Greg, do you have any more, any further on that?
6: Uh just, uh, some of the areas that we hunt that have typically had a grizzly bear hunt. We, I do see personally, I see bigger numbers. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if what you mentioned, you know, people taking issues into their own hands eventually starts happening. Um, You know, I haven't heard of it yet, but it would not surprise me with the numbers that I've seen in some of the areas that I go. And, you know, some of those areas are close to, close to people, close to town. So it's there. I'm seeing bigger numbers, but that's, you know,
3: as they call it in Africa, shoot, shovel, and shut up. That's (laughs) what happens when there's not a value on them.
6: Oh, exactly. And, you know, we, A couple of years ago, we were in the back country and, uh, we had conservation officer in an RCMP plane land on the lake. We're at And the very first question out of their mouths is, have you guys shot a grizzly? It was already closed at that point, but that was the very first question. So that leave me, lead me to believe that maybe there is an issue that they're not publicizing yet.
1: I can, I just share something. I, I, on this note, I, I uh, don't have the experience, obviously, that Kyle and Greg do, being British-Columbian residents. But I just came back from in the early June from a B.C., a black bear hunt in B.C. And um, I can tell you that in four days, we saw 27 bear and 20 of them were grizzlies. And um, uh, I can't tell you how those bears behaved before, having only been, that was my first time in that area. But I can tell you that those grizzlies were fearless. And curious, and um, we got a good scare with one of them, you know. And um, um, and I think that says something, you know. And and then we we know why there's so few black bears in that area because there's just so many grizzlies, right? And what they what they do to black bears. So um, I I I mean I I think I saw it firsthand, Kyle. And and your season, I mean, sorry, your grizzly hunt was closed three seasons ago.
0: Uh, no, it's been longer than that. Well, uh, it already? Five, five or six years, I think. Yeah, oh, 2017, okay. I thought okay. was the last year. Uh, yeah, but uh, or maybe 2018 was the last year. So, uh, and I do believe, like Colin was on that trip with you, and I remember Colin saying to me that he hunts that area quite readily, and and it, it wasn't this problem like it was this time. This is the worst he's ever seen it. So right. I found that was interesting. Yeah. So, um, and one point, Sue, that's worth noting is that you know, the big difference with Africa versus North America is the fact that it's all private land, right? So, um, it's a significant difference. So people manage the wildlife, how they see fit on their own property. If I'm not wrong in Africa, is that correct?
3: Well, it's different for, you know, I remember Africa is a, a lot of nations. So every nation's a little different, like Tanzania, for instance, all the wildlife is owned by the government. So the people don't own the wildlife at all, but Namibia and, um, uh, South Africa, for instance, they do own the wildlife. but Zimbabwe, Mozambique. It's all a little different. And just as you were saying early, early on in the con, uh, the um, podcast, somebody was saying about hunters are responsible for people being here. When we were in Mozambique, there was literally no wildlife when we went through the little towns where there was people. As soon as we got onto hunting concessions, it was like a utopia. But we saw no wildlife aside from that. So that was just, I mean, that's just one incidence, but, um, but anyway, as far as the land ownership, it's way different for each country in Africa.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, appreciate that. You know, and, uh, and, and
2: exactly. I, would like to. Kyle, I, I, I was going to mention something about Africa because when you're looking at predators and how, how, how predators, and uh, how habitat can affect them. Like Sue was saying, uh, Namibia has areas that are, are that really look a lot like uh, uh, a ranch community here in the American West. Uh, central uh, Namibia has huge grassland areas that uh, are full of uh, uh, ranches that'll have uh, 40,000, 50,000 acre ranches. And they put in buried water lines that have really helped... Uh, they're, they're looking out for the welfare of their cattle and, and livestock, but it also creates uh, year-round water uh, uh, access for uh, the, the indigenous species. And the number of leopards in that type of an environment is unbelievable compared to, say, you go up to the Swoo Game Reserve in Tanzania or any of the big wildlife reserves. Those areas were, are generally areas that were created because they had a a water resource and a reserve for wildlife, you know, grass and water, so the animals during the dry season could move into a, a place where they'd have food to eat and water to drink. And, uh, uh, but as soon as the, 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 the droughty dry period would end, they leave and they scatter or lost across a huge landscape. So the number of predators you run into, leopards don't follow those migratory, uh, antelope species. So the number of leopards are really a lot lower. I've found, uh, you know, lions will follow Buffalo and, uh, and, uh, they'll follow, uh, you know, herd animals like wildebeest and, and hartebeest and so forth. They have to, they're like wolves, but, uh, and, and so, I mean, it, it, there's lots of wild places left in, in Africa. And if the animals are given an advantage, they respond really quickly. And, uh, uh hyenas you'll see hyenas everywhere jackals a lot of cheetahs are probably the the rarest of the of the uh, predators there right now uh but uh you know and lions uh, as sue mentioned if lions go into an area where there's a lot of people running cattle and so forth and, and and they'll lose their tolerance they they just go out and poison the local water hole and they kill the whole pride at one time so i mean there's 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 some there's got to be we we want predators on the landscape. I mean that's the bottom line on it. But uh, uh, there's there's reasons that uh, we we should be hunting them, and it's going to vary from area to area. Uh, so I mean Africa is Africa is being punished by people that don't understand the needs of the wildlife in their country, and that's really that's sad because the end result will end up like Kenya, closed in 1976 to hunting. And, and virtually all the wildlife has gone, other than what's present in some of the uh, the national parks, which are so overgrazed and beat up the, you know the animals. I mean, if they've lost their wildlife uh, habitat and resource, so Africa is a disaster zone if you get right down to it. Uh, this this is how I look at North America versus Africa. It's different. So,
3: uh, and predators belong reason. everywhere. You have to take their viewpoints. So many people disregard the pe- the view of the African people. And you can make all these rules and hente- these hunting bans. You can do, do all that. But if you don't have the local people on board, those lions are still going to be poisoned. Those animals are still going to be killed. They're still going to be poached. You have to have the local people involved. doesn't matter what laws we pass here or what laws they try to pass. It's not going to protect the animals if the people don't want them protected.
0: Uh, Great point, both of you guys. And, you know, which brings me to something that I've been thinking a lot about lately and and came up again on this predator podcast when I was doing some thinking about it. And uh, that first abstract that I shared with the group uh, that I read at the start um, and out of that abstract, uh, it, it also said society demands that wildlife managers take a broader perspective on predator management than focusing solely on enhancing populations of those species preferred for hunting. So, you know, I'm I'm thinking about that. And I, I know you guys are pretty lucky because you live in amazing states like Montana and Utah and Wyoming and, and uh, Idaho and uh, all these great places. And um, B.C., we're not quite as lucky. We've got a different political landscape here. And we hear things like we shouldn't be managing wildlife on science that you shouldn't even be using that. And and one of the very tenets of North American wildlife management is based on science-based wildlife management. So um and, and then also, you know, we've got very vocal anti-hunting groups here that say that wolves' lives are more important than or is, as important as as sheep, or they're more as important as caribou. Um, we I've heard anti-hunting groups say that let caribou die. They don't, if they're too stupid to evolve, let them die. So I guess the question for the group is, you know, how do we, how do we kind of change that narrative? Renee, you talked about the positivity. You've seen some, some good steps, some positive steps, some more acceptance uh, towards hunting, um, especially around the protein piece. But how do we stay the course and Um, sort of stay on track to make sure that we don't lose track of one of the things that has made uh, the North American wildlife management model so successful here. Easy question, right?
1: Yeah. Wow. (laughs) You're bringing it home Kyle. Uh, I I mean, there, there is no quick and easy answer to that. I think we all recognize that. Right. But I, I don't know what the answer is. It's really challenging. How, how do you combat a voice, that's so fervently opposed to your position, and they won't even listen to something as very fundamentalist science. I don't know what the answer is. Maybe somebody here is wiser than me and has the answer, but I—I'll just go back to what I said before, Kyle. That I think we have to uh, focus on um, legislators um, signed scientists as long as i suppose they're still making those decisions but the legislators are so important because of what we've seen recently with votes like in colorado like john spoke about or what's uh, currently underway in oregon and the fight that's going on there um, um to me those two audiences are key but but beyond that i think recognizing the movability of the opposition is really important and focusing instead on that middle ground um, having a reasoned and calm voice as informed as we can be. but I don't have an answer to your question, Kyle. I'm surprised to hear you have groups in British Columbia that are saying, don't let the science talk. I that shocks me. I would think that that would be a tenement for most decision making, reasonable decision making from hunting and beyond. I, I don't know what to say.
4: I've actually heard that, um that argument of with the caribou and actually some other species. And it's so funny because it always comes from anti-hunters. And what what I think is ironic is that in my opinion, and mind you, you're you're always going to have some bad apples in the group, right? You're I don't care if you take a group of teachers, police officers, hunters, there's always bad apples and there's always amazing, remarkable people. In general, though, I would say that the hunters that I know, that I talk with, that I, um, you know, and they're everything from the duck hunters of the world who are very passionate to, you know, sheep hunters, like there's a big, huge spectrum, but the hunters I know care so much about wildlife and that's all wildlife. I don't I I think wolves are beautiful. I also absolutely 100% think they need to be managed. And I think most hunters in general want every species to have a place and to have a balance of everything. I know I I know tons of hunters who are passionate mule deer hunters and I know a bunch of guys who all they care about is elk and I know some guys that all they care about is coyotes. <laughs> But I, I, but in general, I would say hunters love the landscape and that we want all species to be here and fl- flourish and to be here for our grandkids' grandkids. And like, we're the ones who are, we're the majority of the, the, you know, walk the walk, talk the talk and putting our dollars in action to save the species and the habitat and the critical access that we need. A lot of that comes from hunters' dollars, and that is a message that is just so not understood or not even on non hunters' radars. Um, but I I think it's important that we all have those kinds of conversations, whether it's at the Christmas dinner table with family and friends. I've got tons of family that are not hunters, uh, I've got lots of girlfriends from the midwest that they're not hunters and when we do talk we can have great conversations and i've had them say to me i cannot believe you killed a mountain lion this year or whatever and i've had to have that dialogue with them but i think it's really important that we do um but back to the back to what renee was saying i don't have the answer either but i do think it's those kind of just mind-blowing comments like well let let the caribou die off or who cares about wild sheep? Those are not, those comments don't come from the hunters. I feel like we are out there on the landscape and we are out there appreciating every, you know, site we get to see and we're out there trying to protect it and make sure there is balance. I really think it's about the balance.
5: You know, uh, I was having a conversation the other day with a buddy of mine about some legislators and they're uh, real fired up about getting the deer herd back they call it and you know if we do this we're going to get there and if we do that we're going to get there i don't think there is a there i think that what we're talking about predator management wildlife management on any scale it's a dog fight every day for the rest of our lives because you can't just you know the like Jack said, you know, things change. Where there used to be thousands of deer, now there's thousands of elk. Things change. And we have to be in the fight. We have to be pushing good science-based management every day for the rest of our lives so that our kids can have a taste of what we have when we go out on the mountains. I just don't, uh, I don't think we can, you know, ever afford to give in and and i think it was renee when we were uh, kind of emailing around getting ready for this meeting talked about the the let mother nature take over do her thing crowd mother mm-hmm. nature is beautiful but mother nature is a mean mean person there you know she hunt, hunt, hunting is the hands down the most humane part of the food chain you know, we've talked a lot about bears and Jack mentioned, you know, watching the bears tackle the moose calves or the elk calves or watching a, you know, a, a wolf or a coyote take a, a doe down and eat her uterus out, pull the fawn out of it. I mean, those are those are rough things. Those are hard things. But that's that's Mother Nature's management. And Mother Nature doesn't, you know, ebb and flow as much as we would like to see. Mother Nature is a lot more if we weren't involved, Mother Nature is boom and bust. You know, Kyle mentioned, let the caribou die. People say, just let the caribou die. Well, okay, then the wolves, you know, starve and, and go away. And then hopefully, you know, 100, 150 years from now, there's enough caribou to bounce back. Well, I don't want to wait 150 years. I, don't, I want my grandkids and my kids, you know, to be able to have what we have. We can't, we can't afford to just roll over and throw up our hands and say, you know, fine, fine, you, you know, let Mother Nature run it. I'm out. It's frustrating. It's hard. It's aggravating. It's expensive. All of us have donated, you know, I, I'd like to have a dollar for every hour that this panel of, of people have donated to wildlife management in one way or another. But we have to. If we're going to have anything, n- and I, I mean hunting opportunity and wildlife to go along with it we have to be in the fight we absolutely have to be in the fight and uh, is is there a silver bullet to to win the argument with those that don't see things the way we do no I, I really don't think there is I think we get up every day we pull our boots on we do the best we can as being ambassadors for for hunting for conservation we do the best we can when it comes to uh elected officials, telling our story, you know, being good representatives. And uh, that's all we can do. Now, that's a lot. But I mean, that's what we have to do. We have to do it. It, There is no destination. If we felt like we were there today, we'd have to do it again tomorrow. And then we'd have to do it again next year because we go through a bunch of seasons and things change. So uh, it, it it's it's daunting, but it's a must. It's a must that we continue to have these conversations and, you know, take this cause forward in any way we can.
3: can I add just a little bit to that, I think it's so important that hunters stick together. And like Renee mentioned earlier, how one hunter things, well, if they take that away, it's okay, it's not my kind of hunting. I really truly believe, like Renee, that once they get one, they're just gonna keep coming and keep coming. So I just feel like hunters have to stick together. And that goes for, you know, my heart's really in this too, because of Africa, because there's so many hunters who don't care about Africa. They don't, you know, they don't understand because they're not going to eat the meat. They don't understand that concept. And it's like, just like non-hunters, some of them don't understand all the the complexities of Africa and why hunting is so important. But so that worries me for most because I think Africa is probably the first on the chopping block. You know, one of the first that and predators, predators are the other one, but I just feel like a hunters really have to stand up for each other. And in a nice way, when they hear something bad being, I mean, I always say, when I'm in a pocket or something I want, when they read my book, I want people to fight for Africa and I don't fights, I mean, when you hear something being said, that's wrong, just in a nice gentle way, say counter it and tell them the truth and spread the stories. And that's what we need to do with all kinds of hunting. I believe.
5: Education That's is our most point. powerful tool, I believe. Uh-huh. Education is yes. our most powerful weapon that we have in all this that we've talked.
3: Yeah.
1: Yeah. There's nothing better than an informed and engaged sportsman. Right. Yeah. Yep. I, you know, and um, uh, Sue, I, I think it might've been you when you did your, um, your talk is a sheep podcast, but I think you said something like hunting conserves habitat in its natural state. And I just was reminded of that, John, when you were talking about how hunting is the most natural way to uh, contribute to um, the management of any species, predator or otherwise, right? And I really like that, you know, hunting conserves habitat in its natural state, because it it does. And I think, you know, that's part of how we can frame our message,
3: that's what I always try to tell people. Like I live in the middle, live on the edge of the canyon and, and the prairie has wheat fields. I try to say, okay, if this if this land was worth something as, you know, if you have all this land, it has to pay the bill somehow. So you're either going to, maybe you'll hunt a couple of mule deer on it and you can earn money from that or you're going to turn it into wheat fields and plow everything under and there goes the habitat. So I, I try to put it in that context that, you know, and hunting does keep land in its natural state, like you said.
4: Awesome. Greg, you
0: got anything for the crew?
4: Oh, I, you guys made it all
6: challenging. We hit touched a lot of bases. I was going to go with the Q&A at the end from uh, people on social media, but, you know, we we touched on a lot of them. Um, so we, we could keep it short and sweet here, I think, since... We've answered most of the questions. You guys did a great job. (laughs) Uh, Just pursue. In Africa, when it it comes to the importance of predator management, what's your feeling or what do you see when it comes to the rural communities? Like how important is predator management to them?
3: It's critical. It's critical. I mean, you know, a few years ago, three kids were, four, four brothers were, herding they're going after their cattle and three of them were killed by a pride of lions. and the one brother had got to the tree he had to watch his three brothers not just be killed but eaten by lions so this is something that people the rural people deal with on a day-to-day basis it is not just lions it's elephants elephants can take out a villagers entire crops in a night and then they have nothing to feed their family for the rest of the year so you have to you know, and the thing with hunting over there is it disperses the money so far and wide. A lot of people like to make that argument that um, photo tourism is the way to go. But those places are already used up. Hunters make landscape that's less valuable, to tourist you know, it doesn't have the pretty sites. It doesn't have large populations of animals. It has tsetse flies. It makes all that that nasty habitat. <laughs> good and valuable to hunters because hunters, they're gluttons for punishment. (laughs) You know, you guys will do anything to hunt and it doesn't matter what misery you go through. So, um, but not every ecotourist wants to do that. So that's what I say, it is just critical. And then, so hunting brings money into all those rural communities and spreads the money far and wide into the smallest instead of it all being condensed around those national parks and stuff. So that's, that's one reason it's important. Then again, it it comes back to habitat. You know, you have to keep, you have to, if not, they're going to turn it into cattle pastures. They're a cattle society over there. And, um, so if, if they're not, if that land isn't valuable by selling a few animals off of it, then they're going to turn it into cattle or cornfields.
6: Yeah. Good point. Uh, the next question was directed towards outfitting. So, uh, we'll give this one to Jack from, from your view as an outfitter in the past, uh, and you've made a, a a living off of ungulate populations, have you uh, played a role in the your hunting territories for predator management to see those populations thrive? Have you noticed the difference?
2: I, I would I would say, uh, uh, you know, it, it 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 depends on the region. I mean, as I said earlier, if you have a if you have abundant ungulate populations, you're gonna have abundant pr- predators. I mean, they're just gonna they're gonna react to uh the the bounty uh and quickly. I mean, predators are uh respond just like any other species out there, they'll take advantage of a, a good situation. If you're in, in in Africa, I mean my 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 job as a hunting consultant. I mean, I got many, many times people would show up from Africa and they were up. Uh, They were a a game warden and they had a a large block of land that that, uh, they were in charge of and they had no money to do any improvements or hire uh, uh, anti-poaching or water uh, projects or whatever. So they would use, uh, just like we do here in North America, they'd use uh, a, a small portion of the wildlife resource to pay for the uh well-being of the, the overall population so I would, I would i would teach people how to uh uh market uh an outfitting business uh and uh bring them clients help them with the uh, keeping a, a a business structure going and 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 run a trip they were they were Biologists or game wardens—they didn't have, they weren't outfitters or businessmen. But that's what—that was my role over the years. I, I, and that, and I—I would—I'd be approached by people from Canada over the years as your guiding systems were developed, uh, guiding territories. I mean, it was only in the '60s a lot of these areas were developed. It was uh, around 1970, North, Northwest Territories. That's when the guiding territories came off, and there were there were people that ended up with these areas and they didn't know how to, uh, to manage it uh, as, as a, as a businessman. And uh, inevitably their, uh, their, their place on the landscape gave them the best view of uh, what the wildlife situation was. And they could report that on to a wildlife manager in, in the government and they'd say, look, we, uh, we don't have many grizzlies here. Don't, you, you, sh- you shouldn't be shooting grizzlies. We don't have enough to hunt. Uh, to this day, the Northwest Territories is closed to grizzly hunting uh, because they, for whatever reasons, grizzlies haven't thrived there. They could probably take some, but that's the way it was. Be, the Yukon, it was one bear in a lifetime. Well, as bears evolved over the present landscape in the Yukon, uh, outfitters and that were supported by hunters uh, basically said, look, we, we can take more of these bears. They're starting to beat up on the, the moose. So, you know, it, 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 you, there, there's no question that predators, uh, in, in, in from an outfitting, outfitting standpoint, an outfitter is, is part of, uh, an outfitter is going to have business advantages to having the full spectrum of wildlife doing well and being able to offer an opportunity for whatever someone might want to uh, to hunt or see and so forth. And uh, I don't see any outfitters want to beat up on just black bears or grizzlies. They, I mean, they want to perpetuate uh, that balance in the population. They might, they might know that they, they have to react to bad winters, take less sheep hunters. They have to if, if there's too many bears, they might say, hey, we we feel like we need to to take a few more." And so. And that's just kind of human logic, yeah, and so I, I've seen it over and over with people. I mean, they, the, uh, you know, they they become really good shepherds of their land, and they understand the the, the local conservation needs better than uh, anyone. So, uh, you know, that's my viewpoint on it. I mean, I'd always go to the local outfitter, and and if if he's been there for years, he's he's going to have the. The best uh, knowledge of uh, you know, needs or threats and so forth, and they should always be part of the dialogue. So that's that's my two bits on it. Excellent, thank you. Um,
6: the next one was directed to government, um, so I'm going to pass this one off to Jana with since her Montana Commission time. It's a fairly loaded question, but easy, I, I would say. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And you might not want to answer, honestly. No. We'll <laughs> um, do my
4: best.
6: We, we've, we've toned down the original question. Um, did you find most individuals in the government were open to discussion? Is Was it fairly split? Or do we even have a fighting chance when dealing with government and predator management?
4: Um, I I honestly had a great experience. And I really feel like... Um, you know, that it, that's a really broad question to say if government it has open ears. Um, I hate politics to tell you the truth. Um, I really do. I feel John is, he is way more informed on the, the politics side of things. But in terms of my commission in Montana, I honestly, to be completely honest, felt like everyone involved on all sides of the issue and I loved all the commissioners. And there were little, there were definitely commissioners who were on both sides of the political spectrum. And I, as people, as human beings, as what I would call friends, I really felt like all of them were at the table with open ears. And I felt like our legislators who often reached out to me were, had great, had great advice as well as open ears. I felt like uh, to, be, to be completely honest, I feel like, yeah, in this social media world we live in now, there are so many keyboard warriors out there who, you know, happy to spout off their two cents worth about a penny, have no idea of the complex issues that are actually going on behind the scenes. But when you sit down with someone and have a conversation and you can look them in the eye and have a face-to-face dialogue with them I really do feel the majority of people want to have good honest open communication and I felt like yeah I did I did witness that uh, I'm curious to would you John is way more politically connected than I am what is your what, what is your opinion uh, do you think there are open ears out there yeah
5: I think that uh you know when you look at the makeup of the united states especially and there's red states and blue states i can tell you right now your predator management is going to follow the red mm-hmm. or the blue it just is mm-hmm. and uh elections have consequences and uh that trickles down all the way to uh you know your your hunting seasons your predator management and and things like that having sat on the board and listened to people that had very different opinions than me i felt like most people involved in the government from the governor's office all the way down to the to the uh, people working for the division of wildlife they had an opinion as we all should have an opinion know what you believe know why you believe it but most were willing to be persuaded with a good argument good science and i tried to uh I tried to fall into that I always tried to have my position but always you know was willing to be persuaded if I felt somebody brought uh good information good dialogue and good facts to the table so are we screwed no is is predator management uh a tough issue yes but I you know I think in in uh now, if I was in California, I, I might have a different opinion. Where I'm at, you know, we, we live in a pretty red red state here, and they're surrounded by fairly red states. Uh, but like,
4: be, like you it, said, it is, we have to be in yeah, the fight it, anyway. Yeah,
5: it is. No, it's, it's very open. Uh, we're not screwed. We're, not, we're very much in the conversation and very much in the fight.
6: So to add to that one, John... Um, you have any suggestions for the, the average guy a gal approaching government to engage them on absolutely. this hot topic? Oh, oh. absolutely,
1: yes. yes, me, yes, me, yes me. Yes, me. Yes, I'm, gonna,
4: yes, yeah, yes, I'm too me. old. I'm too old. I'm gonna forget this. I have one piece of advice that I think is really important for people, and then you can jump in and interrupt me. Do not Give, do not submit the copy and paste letters. I don't care what side you're on. I don't care if you're uh, pro black bear hunting or you're anti wolf, whatever your side is on. I can tell you from someone who read every single piece of mail that went through the division or to me directly when it's a copy and paste, me- delete, 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 delete. I don't even, I don't care. I don't, I don't care that 2,000 anti. Uh, Hunters, wolf lovers, emailed me the exact same email. I don't care. Make it personal. State your opinion. Make it short and sweet. But yeah, those are they're going to be read from the from the biologists inside the division or DNR to the commissioners. They're going to be read. But do not do the copy and paste thing. It's a bad idea. Would you agree with that?
5: Can I talk? Okay. 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 Uh, (laughs) I would agree with what she said. Make it personal. And I was always amazed at how people would send an email and the first thing they would do, you know, Mr. Bear, I think you're a jackass. I think this, I think that now do exactly what I say. Yeah. You know, as much as we try to take the human element out of it, it's hard when, you know, the first thing people do is, is disrespect you. So first thing I would do is say, you know, you can have a very strong opinion. You can be upset that's fine. But delivery matters. Be
4: professional,
5: be respectful. Uh, People would come and, you know, sometimes people would send me a 10 page email and I never really understood what they were asking me to do. People would stand up in the meetings and talk for five minutes and sit down. I'm like, what do they want? And so, you know, be direct be direct, you know, write your commissioner, Mr. Commissioner, I am asking you to vote this way. Because. Here is why. And, uh, you know, be direct, be respectful. And it's not hard to now. I mean, our every, almost every wildlife agency has a, has an app where you can get on your phone. You can look up whether it's the commissioners, the wildlife board members, however they manage you know, they all have a, a public email and you can email them and it's it's not hard to get involved. It's not hard to engage, but, uh, but the, the to- way you do it matters. Yeah. Oh, okay. The way you do it matters, the way you do it matters. So be respectful, delivery matters.
4: And there's great groups like Howell, Blood Origins, all those great groups that, uh, and of course, Wild Sheep. And we have all the other great, amazing conservation groups. I think collectively we belong to 11 of them. Um, And they'll often, especially Howl and Blood Origins will say, send out messages and say, okay, attention all Washington people. You know, they're trying to take away our bear hunt or attention all, um, you know, and you can, they make it super easy where you can just click on the, um, click on the link, there's the letter, you click on another link and it sends the same letter off. Most of the time, I would highly recommend, it says who the letter is going to, write your own. Just copy and paste that email, you know, write your own, make it a short, sweet paragraph, the copy and paste messages get ignored after just a couple of them. And yeah, they may take a, okay, we got 700 of those, but they don't mean half as much as if you just take the effort to be personal and polite. They
5: turn into white
4: noise. Yeah.
5: Well,
6: that's great advice from both of you. And now we'll close with Renee. I think I, I've given you a kind of a difficult one here, but when it comes to uh, the anti-predator hunting rhetoric and anti-predator management, what do you find is the the best way to help educate individuals that are approaching you like that and the best way to conduct yourself in the public eye?
1: Well, um... I'll qualify my answer by saying I'm certainly not perfect and I've definitely fumbled uh, um, in the past, but um, always I try to have my wits about me when I'm in a public venue as much as possible. Right. And um, um, I I enjoy um people who take the opportunity to ask in a polite way, at least, or you know. A respectful way why I might have a certain position or why I might hunt that species or um, I enjoy the engagement and so where I really start on predator hunting and predator management if I'm asked in a nice way is um, you know just having that conversation about I kind of start it really simply to be honest with you I'll ask them if they like to spend time in nature and do they go out and do they like seeing wildlife when they go out and and i'll start dialoguing just about their personal connection to nature it helps me to understand if they even are out there and what do they value when they are if they are um, you know, because I'm a Canadian, I I've lived in the States now since 2019, but I lived, I grew up in Alberta and we had, you know, beautiful national parks there. And that was an easy one. You know, people go to the national parks and they want to see all sorts of wildlife everywhere. So that's kind of where I started usually. And then I, I'm, I find I'm really able to, um, personalize it that way and normalize it and just talk to them about how I love that too. And that predator, Management is important to ensure that we can see the elk, the deer, the bighorn sheep, the whatever it is that they told me that they love to see. And I I just really find that that is a good way to ease into it with a, you know, with a semi-receptive audience anyway. It really helps to, I think, Greg, that I'm able to talk about my personal journey too and normalize it that way that, you know, one of my motivations were, how surprising it was to hunt a predator as my first hunt why I was okay with it the lessons I had learned before that hunt the um, personal journey I took to um, ask questions and research and figure that out Um, talking about the fact that we actually eat the meat from predators is surprising to most people who um, don't hunt and they're intrigued Um, and I just find nice ways to sort of talk about i hit on those little you know it's not like i talk for an hour i just hit on them in brief and tangible ways succinct ways that are approachable and relatable to most people um but at the end of the day keeping my cool really i think is a- almost always the reason why i even get anywhere because i just i just won't rise to it as a rule like i said i haven't been perfect but um um, you know, I, I I show them respect, and it seems to be reciprocated.
6: That's a great message. Thank you.
0: Well, it's two hours enough where we keep going. We got more to cover. <laughs> uh, you know, we've kind of knocked this thing on the head tonight, and uh, great perspectives, and really cool to hear the different um, backgrounds and different people's views on things and I really appreciate all the time you guys have taken tonight and, and, um, the wealth of experience and knowledge and commitment to conservation that's been put uh, forth by this group. It, it, you know, you start adding up the hours, right? Like uh, on what each and every one of you has put in, you know, here we are, we probably spent two hours and there's seven of us 14 hours of our time went to conservation tonight in a different way, but we're still doing it. So, you know, thanks to each and every one of you. Um, is there a call to action is it, what can we drive home for people about predator management what's what's the message we want people to to be left with who's who's going to volunteer that last bit I will. all right let's do it jenna
4: i would just say to get the piece of advice i would say is get involved um if you're if you're a hunter i'm going back now to i believe was it Sue or renee who said you know oh their advice was oh it was my, Um, if you're going to be into hunting, you need to support all kinds of hunting. And I'm going to go back to that. And I completely agree with that, as long as it's, you know, legal, ethical hunting. And, but I think the call to action would be to get involved. And there's so many ways to do that. But super briefly, I, whether it's a conservation group, like wild sheep of BC or wild sheep or going to Reno, but hey, let's plan your vacation. and, And what is wild sheep expo all about? It's, it is one of the funnest weekends of my entire year. Go to Reno, check it out. Maybe it's joining your local Ducks Unlimited. Um, maybe it's going to the SFW picnic. Whatever. Maybe it's buying MDF tickets to their ultimate giveaway. They're ten bucks a piece. You know, whatever it is.
5: Shameless plug. It's shameless shameless plug.
4: it's ten bucks, and it goes all towards their mission of protecting mule deer blacktail habitat. Get involved. I think it, there, it, there's so many simple ways to do it. Get involved, join your local or your state's DWR or DNR or Fish, Wildlife and Parks, sign up for their email list. At least then you're notified of what's going on. And a lot of times legislatively notified of what's going on. So join Howl. join Blood Origins. It's really simple um, to get involved, especially nowadays with social media, join those pages to see what the fight is all about and get in the fight. That's what I would say.
0: Sage advice. That's awesome, Jack, Renee, Sue, Jana, John, and of course, Mister Rensbeg. Thank you guys all so much for everything. It's been a blast, and uh, let's do it again. Maybe next week.
1: Right on. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much.
4: Thank you.